0: If in the U.S. and Western Europe, the populism is coming from a place of weakness, then the policy response to that has to be very different, right? It has to be to neutralize the factors that lead to that disenfranchisement. And for civil society, it's to recognize the sources of that, right? So what can you do about automation in the U.S.? What can you do about job loss or, you know, retraining for workers? How do you manage the process of cultural diversity, right, or increasing diversity, um, Whereas in developing countries, it's a very different phenomenon. It's in a way trying to strengthen institutions. And civil society needs to focus more on protecting institutions and strengthening them so that you know this assertion of power doesn't undermine them. From the McCourtney
1: Institute for Democracy in the studios of WPSU on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkeley. And I'm Chris Beam.
2: I'm Jenna Spinelli. And welcome to Democracy Works. Today, guys, we are talking about populism and some of the ways that it has manifested itself around the world, and some of the ways that people are pushing back against it.
1: I thought we already talked about this. We have,
2: yeah, lots of time. <laughs> right? we, you know, we're, we're it comes.
1: Up, it, it seems to come up
3: pretty. Yeah, frequently, it's, it's a right? small <laughs> little
2: thing happening around the world, you know, but. Uh, Joining us, uh, we have with us again uh, Vanita Yadav. Um, you might remember her. Off, she was on the show last fall. She's an associate professor of political science here at Penn State. And we talked with her last fall all about India. But to say that Vanita is only an expert on India is to sell her shorts about her knowledge of, of politics and, and comparative politics from uh, throughout the world. And she joins us today uh, to talk about, uh, again, some of the, the ways that, that populism is is manifesting itself and how people are pushing back against it.
1: Yeah. So what's different with this conversation than others we've had about populism is that with Venita, you'll be able to go into some of the reactions against populism that we're seeing in countries where populist leaders have taken hold.
3: Yeah, that's true. And then it's also true that for very you know self-interested reasons, we've been focusing on populism as it is manifested primarily, not exclusively, but primarily in the United States and Europe and Great Britain, if you want to call that now that they're separate well, again. Yeah. You can, I mean, we did shows on Brazil and yeah. India, and so we've mm-hmm. been yeah,
1: right. about it yeah. in other – it might be useful for people to review a little bit. Populism and why it's considered a threat to liberal democracy. All right. And I, I thought maybe the place to start is by, you know, just going over. We've talked about this before, but it's probably useful to talk about it a little bit again about what we mean when we talk about a liberal democracy. Oh, I should start there yeah. and then talk about populism. Yeah, that, because I think it's, it's easy to. It becomes easier to understand why populism is kind of a threat when you first lay out that liberal democracy contains various elements. I mean, one, one element being this notion, right, of democracy that we all think about mm-hmm. when we think about democracy, majoritarianism, that lots of decisions are made by with public input and that uh, majority rule holds. Right, right. And then also related to it is this idea of liberalism, liberalism with a small L, not the big L, uh, but, you know, liberalism in the classic sense of... Uh, that there are how to put this, There are spheres of your life that are out of reach of government. That you are free to speak, you're free to assemble, you have various freedoms: life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And the government is to use there. the Declaration of Independence, right. but but if you use the uh, Constitution, you have the Bill of Rights, uh-huh. which are all a which are a series of of constraints on government. Right,
3: government is meant to secure these rights, not to you know make sure you have them, not take them
1: away. Right. Yeah. Think about populism, and the reason I think that populism it kind of confuses people as to why it's considered a threat to liberal democracy, is that it really does emphasize the majoritarianism in the democracy end of things. I mean, it takes deeply the idea that the majority should rule, or at least that the people should rule. I mean, it differs in how it defines the people. I think you can find some of the reasons why populism is is
3: appealing to people in some of those features you just mentioned, right? So, so when you talk about the people... Um, it is one thing to talk about that as literally everybody, and it's another thing to talk about some subset that is more the
1: people than the other subset. And even in the American system, at the very beginning, the framers had built up some notion of this. And there's a there's a part in Federalist II that's not often talked about. Oh,
2: I don't think we've talked about Federalist Two. We on have the show not before. because we don't
1: often talk about Federalist II, because it's not really that consistent with the sort of multicultural, diverse country that. It's built up uh, since that time. But uh, in Federalist II, they wrote, Providence has been pleased to give this one connected country to one united people, a people descended from the same ancestors, speaking the same language, professing the same religion, attached to the same principles of government, very similar in their matters and customs. That's from our Federalist mm-hmm, Papers, mm-hmm. and and that speaks to this sort of populist notion of an us against them. That there are these, you know, I mean, right there, they're sort of defining that in the American case, you've got this one people, and they're all kind of the same, and uh, I th- I th- therefore with a similar interest. I think it
3: is. I, I would I would be I would be willing to bet that there's not a populist movement. In the history of the world that doesn't define itself as appealing to the real Hungarians, the real Indians,
1: the real America. You know, I think maybe what we should do is to listen to Vanita about what's going on in uh, a couple of different countries, several different countries, and then maybe come back and speak in more general terms about what the different approaches might be to, to countering populism. What we're seeing in those countries, what we might see in some other countries. That sounds good. Right. Sounds
2: good. Here is my interview with Vanita Yadav. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Vanita Yadav. Vanita, thank you for joining us again on Democracy Works for the second time. Oh,
0: Thank you very much for inviting me
2: back. So uh, we are going to, to talk today about some of the Pushback that we've been seeing around the world to to populism and some of the kind of anti democratic forces uh, in, in in a couple of different countries, um, India, Turkey, and, and Brazil specifically. But before we get to that, you know, last time we we had you on the show uh, back in the fall, you we talked all about the state of democracy in in India and the the rise of Narendra Modi and his uh, BJP party. I would certainly encourage listeners to go back and check that episode out. But for folks who haven't, can you just quickly uh, remind us of what the the BJP is and, and why it is perceived as a threat to liberal democracy in, in India?
0: Sure. So the BJP or the the Janata Party is a religious party. It is nationalist. Economically, its position has varied from being protectionist to being pro-market over time. It was it's sort of the latest incarnation in a long list of religious political parties in India. It was established in the 1980s. And then starting in the 1990s, it has started forming governments in India. And uh, they just did something unusual, which is they won their first back-to-back elections uh, this, earlier this earlier last year in May 2019. And uh, the reason that they have they are being perceived as a very serious threat to liberal democracy uh, in India is because they have an agenda which does not endorse liberal values when it comes to civil liberties, including, for example, freedom of speech, treatment of religious minorities, treatment of women, uh, freedom of religion. And they have increasingly pursued this agenda. Uh, uh, through government institutions, through government policies, by using government funding, and since their victory last year, this sort of trend has become more and more pronounced. And uh, the last time we spoke, I think that there were protests were just beginning to start, which were pushing back against their latest policy, which is sort of the sophisticated effort to try and strip as many Muslim citizens of their citizenship. Or at least lay the groundwork. So this this could be an ongoing process uh, for the next few decades.
2: And, and so, as you um, started to mention, now we are seeing we're seeing protests in the in the in the country. It seems like they've maybe started uh, toward toward the end of last year, and have certainly continued now into the new year. Um, can you tell us about who's coming out into the streets? What's motivating them? What are they? What do they see themselves as as fighting for?
0: So so the BJP basically has is trying this two-step process where they basically said, let's create a Citizenship Amendment Act. And this would basically allow illegal immigrants who have been in India from neighboring countries like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, who are not Muslims, to apply for citizenship. And Muslim refugees or illegal immigrants who are Muslims basically would not be eligible for this. And the then president of the BJP, now Home Minister of the uh, of the Government of India, and various other ministers, spoke at public rallies, basically saying this was step one, and uh, you know step two would be requiring people to show their citizenship in order to be part of this database. And so they articulated at rallies this idea that this was going to complete the process of disenfranchising a lot of Muslims. And the law was passed because they have numbers on this side in the lower and the upper chamber at this point. So the law was passed, and it has been ratified. So it is in effect now. What they did not expect is that there would be mobilization by non-Muslim groups, that groups across the country would basically start mobilizing and coordinating, and that it wouldn't just be Muslims. It would be all segments of society It would be, you know, again, across all regions, across all socioeconomic classes. And so it's got them by surprise. But what has happened is the protest began with protests at this uh, sort of very reputable university in in New Delhi called the Jamia Millia University. And it's so it's they have a lot of Muslim students. And initially, the protest was led by Muslim and non-Muslim students from Jamia. Uh, But then that got covered and it got picked up. And it began this contagion of protests. So now there have been protests by universities that are among, you know, the the most prestigious engineering colleges, the most prestigious business schools, um, you know, liberal arts colleges, all kinds of colleges, uh, private, government, and in in states that have been ruled by the BJP as well as states that are ruled by the opposition. And these protests have been reinforced by a lot of citizen support. So it's not just students. You know, there are trade unions and teachers unions and physicians and all kinds of people who are coming out both as organizations and as individuals uh, to support uh, sort of the, the specific, you know, to oppose this specific bill, but then to oppose the agenda and to very clearly call out the BJP and say, this is your agenda.
2: And, and what's the BJP's reaction been to these efforts?
0: So it's been multi pronged. Um, So part of the uh, sort of the, the damage management has been to say, well, there is no two step process. This is really just about giving protection to persecuted religious minorities. And, you know, Afghanistan, Pakistan and Bangladesh are Muslim majority countries. So Muslims cannot be persecuted in these countries. So we are not discriminating against Muslims. We're just protecting who is persecuted. And there are, of course, lots of counterexamples to that with, you know, Muslim refugees from Burma mm-hmm. and Sri Lanka and Emiratis who are persecuted in Pakistan because they're not considered Muslims by uh, sort of mainstream Sunni Muslims. Um, so that was one aspect of it. The second aspect has been to label protesters as uh, anti-patriotic, uh, people who want to divide India into pieces and people who have possibly been shipped in from Pakistan.
2: So let's uh, let's shift gears here a little bit and and talk about Turkey. Um, you know, Erdogan there is often considered as as part of this rise in in populist authoritarian type of leaders, along with Bolsonaro in in Brazil and and Orbán in Hungary. Um, but I think they've just just had elections in in Turkey mm-hmm. pretty recently so what what happened there as, as as far as Erdogan and his party are concerned
0: so the most recent elections were the 2019 uh, municipal and mayoral elections and then 2018 is when they had the parliamentary and presidential elections and even in the parliamentary and presidential elections the AKP the ruling party won but with a lower vote share and Erdogan won, won the presidency clear. And now that it's a true presidential system, the powers of parliament are much, much more limited. But what happened this year was in in uh, in March, April, they had the mayoral elections, and because Turkey is not federal, these are the next most significant subnational elections. And for the first time since the AKP has been in power and since 2003, a lot of these big cities flipped. And so Istanbul, of course, is the banner case. Uh, but Ankara and Antalya, which were controlled by the AKP, have shifted to the CHP, which is sort of the, the center-left secular uh, party that used to be in power uh, when Turkey was a dictatorship. Uh, and, and so they have won these seats. And so it's you know, and the vote share again has dropped compared to previous elections. And Istanbul, of course, became a test case for whether the AKP would go full dictatorship or whether they would accept a loss. So the AKP challenged the results, the elections were redone, and in fact, the margin of victory went up. And so that has been taken as a sign that even conservative sort of supporters of the AKP, who are more moderate and who are more committed to democracy, did not like Sort of this action that an electoral loss was not accepted, uh, and the CHP actually won in in Erdogan's own district uh, within Istanbul. So even conservative neighborhoods in a in a way supported democracy, right? So it's you know a lot of people take that as a very positive sign. Uh, the fact that Erdogan did not challenge everything else is also taken as a positive sign. But there are deeper concerns that there might be efforts to undermine the electoral process in Turkey now because of these results.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I, it, it, it strikes me that, you know, Erdogan is certainly going to be interested in, in keeping the power that, that he has. And, you know, I'm wondering these, the, the, the seats, the, the positions that, that were picked up in, in 2019. I mean, how much... How much of a, a check can they provide on on Erdogan and kind of his his party, the the stake in power that it still has, again at that kind of federal level?
0: So they don't really have that much power in terms of checking uh, the president. What they do have is that symbolic power, right? There is um, feasibility, the ability to demonstrate that this is possible, that you can beat the Akbe, uh even in Ankara, even in Istanbul. That is very, very important because this has been one of the big worries in Turkey, that there really uh, is no party that has enough of a following that they can seriously challenge uh, the AKP. So that, I think, has been – that's a big influential thing that these cities can do and that these mayors can do. The third thing they can do is demonstrate governance. If they – you know, Turkey is another country that is going through an economic slump. And if you look from 2003 to 2008, Turkey was booming. It was doing really well. And after the 2008 crisis, you know, like a lot of country, other countries, it, it shrunk. But then it sort of rebounded, but then not to the same extent. And so there is there are a great deal of economic concerns about, uh, you know, Turkey's future. And one of the things that Mays could do is show initiative in sort of uh, managing economic issues, you know, adopting incentives that, kickstart growth and having relatively corruption free administrations so again it's it's the ability to demonstrate that we are electable if you elect us this is how we're going to govern right and and that's a very powerful thing
2: so the, I think the last country we want to talk about before we try to tie all these threads together is, is Brazil. Uh, we did an episode on Brazil uh, about this time last year that we'll link in, in the show notes. But, you know, Brazil has had this long history of kind of oscillating back and forth between democratic style of government and, and more kind of authoritarian or, you know, military uh, types of, of, of ruling forces. And um we obviously saw Bolsonaro uh, come into power in 2018, uh, and you know we, we, we talked a lot about that the, the last time. But um, what, what, are we, what are we seeing there? Are some of these signs where people that, that are pro-democracy are, are coming forward? Is, is that playing itself out in Brazil?
0: So, I mean, Brazil is, you know, again, if you look at two things in Brazil, which is what has changed in its economy. And Brazil is, I think, still in recession technically. So they have really not been able to recover from the prime, uh, from the subprime uh, crisis. So the economy has really been on a very clear, steady decline in Brazil. Um, Corruption has been a very high profile issue. Right. And that has tainted all of the mainstream parties. And what's interesting about Bolsonaro is that unlike Modi or Erdogan, he did not have his party backing him. This is someone who hopped to a new party just to run for the presidency. Right. So it's it's substantively a very different kind of uh, regime in that sense. The other thing that's really changed in Brazil is the growth of the evangelical movement over the last 20, 30 years. So, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was a predominantly Roman Catholic country. Today, 30 percent of the population is evangelical and they are very well mobilized churches who own television and radio and, you know, and, and have massive followings, and they are very involved in politics. So there is now a set of Christian parties who don't do very well. Um, so 2018 is the first time that one of them has done somewhat well. Um, but they are providing sort of a very similar kind of backbone as the RSS does to the BJP. So in Brazil, what you're seeing, again, is that there is an institutional backbone, Bolsonaro's party. And by the way, he just formed a new party in November. So, you know, and they were allying with him as a person, rather with the party. So in that way, he's in a weaker situation, I think, uh, compared to these other leaders. And that would make it easier for other challengers. But I think a lot depends on his performance. I mean, this is very new. Unlike Erdogan or Modi, he has no economic credentials. There has been no economic boom under him. And so he really has to establish his credentials first for, I think him to be seen as a serious threat. So now whether his type of persona is a threat, right, whether if it's not scenario, there could be another, that I think is more viable. There, there could be you know, a more well-established figure within uh, Brazilian politics who could come up and win uh, in the future or could mobilize in the future with, again, allying with these churches. Uh, so I think Brazil is still, to me, it's still an open case. Um, but the worrisome side is that compared to India or Turkey, there is less support for democracy in Brazil, actually, if you look at public opinion surveys, right? So, um, and surprisingly, a larger sort of demand for a role for religion in, in you know, in government um, than Turkey or India, which is not what you would expect uh, a priority. So there are some, I think, more worrying long-term trends that suggest that maybe Bolsonaro, if not Bolsonaro, someone else. If the economy does well, I think some of that support could, could uh, switch back, in fact, uh, to some of the other parties. But if the economy does poorly, um, it depends on whether it's going to be another Bolsonaro-like politician or whether people do switch back. But there hasn't been the same kind of pushback, and I think the support for something like that seems larger in Brazil at this point.
2: We're we're seeing a lot of uh, these kind of populist movements spring up in you, know, even in places like Italy and, and Germany and kind of spreading throughout Europe. We've talked about, you know, Turkey and, and India as two kind of bright spots, as, as as you've described, or, you know, places where civil society really is starting to, to come out and try to move the needle on these things. Are there lessons that that other countries can take from what's what's happening there about kind of the, the ways to push back against some of these populist forces
0: i mean so the lesson would seem to be that civil society really is 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 the force that can sort of you know try and take this challenge on but i i think we want to be careful about transferring lessons from these countries because populism is rising in my opinion from very different roots so you know in in if you look at you know the arguments for why populism has come up in western europe or in the us it's about you know, cultural backlash and, you know, how economic uh, sort of grievances are reinforcing that. But in a lot of developing countries, like the three we've talked about, in fact, economic growth has reinforced the, you know, the the middle class and the religious conservatives. And so that populism is not coming from a place of weakness. It's coming from a place of strength as an assertion of, you know, we are the ones who have benefited from globalization. And now Mm. we, you know, we would like to see, the national identity reflect our identity as opposed to the U.S. and Western Europe, where it's very much people who, uh, you know, the argument is people who feel disenfranchised by these changes and by globalization. They are the ones who are pushing back. So they're very different dynamics, right? And because of that, who can respond and which segment of civil society uh, can respond has to be different, I think. So uh, in these countries, you know, if, if, If populism is, if in the U.S. and Western Europe, the populism is coming from a place of weakness, then the policy response to that has to be very different, right? It has to be to neutralize the factors that lead to that disenfranchisement. And for civil society, it's to recognize the sources of that, right? So what can you do about automation in the U.S.? What can you do about job loss or, you know, retraining for workers? Um, How do you, you know, sort of manage the process of cultural diversity, right, or increasing diversity, um, whereas in developing countries, it's a very different phenomena. It's, in a way, trying to strengthen institutions, and civil society needs to focus more on protecting institutions and strengthening them so that, you know, this assertion of power doesn't undermine them, right? So I think the policy responses have to be different. Perhaps the actors have to be civil society in both cases, but the responses need to be very different because I think the... the the problems are coming from very different places.
2: So you you mentioned before kind of this this difference between populism that comes from a place of weakness versus a place of, of strength. Um, how does that, if at all, change how how the, the kind of how these populists relate to how they perceive liberal democracy and, and everything that, that comes with it?
0: so i mean it's linked to one their capacity to make things happen right so if you're coming from a place of strength so in in turkey and india for example the religious conservative middle class has gained from globalization has become more prosperous right and they have taken this money and they have uh, strengthened these religious organizations who have then fanned out into all kinds of social and economic organizations right so their capacity to mobilize people, their capacity to, you know, provide campaign finance and get out the vote uh, outfits is very different in terms of the sheer numbers and the, the wealth and the assets that are backing this, right? Whereas in the U.S., there is a lot of street power, right? Uh, but I think because the media in, in the U.S. and in Western Europe is, is more free, Right is privately owned and is more free, and the courts are stronger. They're more. There's less space, in a way, uh, to uh, to use these assets, and then the population that is actually supporting these populists are not as uh, sort of asset rich as I would say the populists who are supporting you know the, or the citizens who are supporting populist movements uh, in the developing world. So there is a difference in capacity and i think that difference in capacity translates into different differences in tactics right and that's why i think where they're going where these weaknesses show up where the attacks show up are are going to be different and that's why their durability is different so you would expect it to be more sustained in countries where it's the people who have benefited and have the assets to back up their efforts whereas in in the us and western europe uh i think it's it's a more optimistic picture in the sense that because they're relatively speaking asset poor the segments of society that are not populous have you know are suffering from a lower uh, asset deprivation, and then you know they can sort of challenge them more successfully
2: right, but also I mean being being cognizant of the fact that they have more assets I mean I think just say, like saying that oh we we already have more power, we have more money, we've benefited more from globalization, et cetera et cetera that kind of it, Helps even fuel the 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 populist notion even more in the in the U.S. at least, anyway. So I think having that being being cognizant of these these different factors also seems like it's it's important.
0: Yeah, and I think that's why the you know the way to tackle this the you know what you need to do has to be different because of that because they're they're showing up in different places. They will you know one might be more sustained and a longer fight. The other might be a a, a shorter of shorter duration. Hopefully.
2: So, Vanita, this has been uh, very eye-opening, I think, uh, especially in an election year in the U.S. It's easy to forget about or ignore what's happening in, in, in other parts of the world. So thank you for joining us today to help shed some light.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: So it's very, very interesting, not surprising that Vanita is able to speak comfortably about India, as well as some other developing countries. A lot countries. more comfortably than either of us. Yeah. Well. <laughs> that's why she's an associate professor of comparative politics exactly. and we're not. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right.
3: It is, um, it is striking um, how different this story is from the story that, uh, you, know, that you would use to uh, describe uh, Brexit or uh, Hungary or even the United States in in some ways, and yet in some ways it's very similar, right? Right.
1: I mean, the thing when you're looking across different countries, I mean, including the U.S. and, and some of these other countries, is that this sort of populist reaction and populist counter-reaction is going to take some different forms, uh, but there are also some common patterns. Uh, you know, I think that one thing that we're seeing, certainly in India, and I think she described this as well in uh, in Turkey, is protest and reaction to some of the some of the actions that have been taken against liberal democracy. Are, no, we, are we talking America,
3: about, you know, um, you know, the original populist uh,
1: movement? And- so, I mean, that's very important because what's happening there is distinguishing between policy differences and threats to what people perceive as threats to the, the legitimacy of the regime. By the regime, I mean, mean democracy. Democracy, sure. But But there are also other ways to address... Populism that you might uh, see as more relevant, and and Venita actually drew this distinction between developed and undeveloped countries. Well, but but it's still, I mean,
3: what I found interesting, especially about India, was you know there is this kind of um, populist argument, and and it and it may appeal to economics, it may appeal to culture, but it but it argues, you know, this idea that you. Um, you resentful, unhappy person you 're the true patriot you 're the real american real Indian, whatever and what struck me about the protest the way she described the protest protests in India was that They were appealing or they were represented by people from all walks of lives, right? All classes, um, all segments of society. And so if that's true and if if you can have a protest that is that widespread, then you undercut the claim that we are the people or the people who support the populace are the people because, no, quite clearly – we are the people who are protesting are the people and so once you undermine that claim then then it becomes more difficult to sustain populism or you know because it always references that it always rests on the idea that there is an us and a them and the us is better us has a better claim to
1: identity and to rule yeah that's that's a good point about how those protests are effective i mean i think that in the us uh, along with some other developed countries which is a distinction that she was trying to draw i think that the issue of how to how to address populism is probably somewhat different than it is in these underdeveloped less developed countries which is what she was trying to explain and i mean in these developed countries if we take her, take what venita was saying as you know a reasonable characterization i think it was that the populism is more cultural you know it's probably traced more to these massive changes in what the country looks like, that the country is becoming more multicultural, that it's becoming, uh, it's becoming less white. In and, the case of the United and States, and more secular, and yes, and more secular. That these are all sort of cultural threats, and 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 these are, you know, I'm not quite sure that just these sorts of protests are the way to address those sorts of issues. You know, when Andrew Sullivan was here. He was making the point that I've seen in in other places as well, that you know, Democrats, if they really want to address the rise of populism, need to start talking seriously about immigration. In, uh, in other words, recognizing that the kind of populist claims to a sort of national sovereignty are legitimate to right. many people. So. so- that's a pretty
3: nuanced argument as well. So your your point is that national sovereignty is uh, is the feeling that that's undermined by immigration. And w- when you say sovereignty, you're really talking about national identity, right? A sense of 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 who we are and what makes us distinctive and what we value as a people. Well, it also speaks to just how um, up for grabs or um, unsettled the world is, not just in terms of economics and immigration, but also just in terms of the rate of change culturally as well, right? Yeah, but I,
1: but I also think that we shouldn't devalue the role of economics, even if these sorts of uh, populism are culturally totally driven. Totally agree. Because re- inequality has certainly contributed to the mm-hmm. sense that people have that others are are taking from them.
3: Well, and others are winning, even though there's nothing legitimate about, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything I should be doing, I'm playing by the rules, I'm working hard, I just want to support my family, and I'm not able to, and you, um, A, are able to, and B, you look down your nose at me. And and resentment is an incredibly powerful force, I mean, it, it, uh, is, as in terms of motivating political um, will and power. And so, yeah, you see that. I, I mean, I, you know, it, so that's. Um, Vanita's talked about this, you know, position of strength from in India and some other countries, and and I'm not quite clear on, you know, there still has to be some kind of resentment. Otherwise, there's no real reason for populism.
1: Well, I think what Vanita is offering us, and we'll probably need more of this, is that here's here's sort of a model of countering populism and restoring democracy, potentially, in some countries. There are applications that we can use for other countries, but populism is diverse, And we need to think broadly about how it can be, how it's going to be responded to
3: effectively. My my thought is that there's there is this um, bargain that's implicit in the any populist movement, and the way you address populism is by undercutting the features of that bargain and that can mean addressing the 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 reasons for resentment that can mean undermining the claim to people whatever it is um, making government more efficient whatever it is you have to you cannot um, fail you're not going to succeed unless you take the reasons for populism seriously and that's basically what you've been saying Yeah. Well, thanks to Vanita for uh, yet yet another uh, really good interview. Thanks to to Jenna. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. This has been Democracy Works.
2: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our engineer, and our editors are Mark Stitzer and Chris Kugler. Additional support comes from Ann Danahay, Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For more information on this episode and detailed show notes, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.
0: Ways and Means is an award-winning narrative podcast that explores bright ideas for improving human society. Ways and Means is hosted by journalist Emily Hanford, a senior correspondent for APM Reports. In the latest season, we focus on hot topics in the 2020 elections and issues in politics and civic life, like news deserts, reparations for black Americans, and what really keeps young voters from turning up at the polls. Ways and Means is produced by Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us online at waysandmeansshow.org.